Plato's Euthyphro, the dramatic setting first. It's set just before the trial of Socrates on charges of corrupting the youth and impiety, roughly 399 BC. Socrates is visiting the Archon Basilus, who looks after such charges. When Socrates meets Euthyphro, who is there as well, with the intention of laying charges against his father for the murder of a slave. Now, in the opening scene, Euthyphro and Socrates meet at the court and exchange their reasons for being there. While Socrates being charged with impiety, Euthyphro is charging his father with impiety. The most serious matter, in fact, the killing the slave. Clearly, Euthyphro must know clearly what piety is if he is going to put his own father's life on the line, or so Socrates suggests. At 4e, Plato begins then with the infamous Socratic ignorance, or Socratic irony. Socrates always claimed to have no knowledge, but at least he knew that he did not know anything. So he was always seeking out those who claimed to know something in order to find someone who was wiser than he. This position of Socrates is ironic because he does not really believe that Euthyphro knows what piety is, but he will accept the claim by Euthyphro for now. Socrates has reasons for accepting someone's position. Here, Euthyphro will not begin the task of philosophy until he realizes that he does not know what he thinks he knows. Socrates must reduce Euthyphro to a state of aporia, or confusion. Aporia is really the sense of no way out. Socrates must break his dogmatism in order for philosophy to begin. This whole approach to argument is called the Socratic method, or sometimes called the Socratic alenkos. But as the method works itself out, useful ideas about definitions and argument forms can be made. Although Plato never wrote any text on logic itself, his dialogues are full of logical material, logical examples. At 6D, for example, we see the example of giving an incorrect definition. Euthyphro gives examples rather than a definition. Socrates wants to learn what sort of thing the pious is, or the impious is. He wants to know what piety is in its essence. He thinks this essence will be the same in all cases of piety, much in the same way that all apples have the same essence, whatever their type. A Macintosh, a Granny Smith, a Golden Delicious, a Russet, whatever. They're all apples. So the examples of piety given by Euthyphro miss the point. A definition cannot be made by examples. So if I said, what's an, what's an apple? And you said a Macintosh or Granny Smith. That doesn't help me. It doesn't give me any insight. At 7a, the pious is loved by the gods. Here... Euthyphro places too much trust in mythology, which Socrates shows can backfire. If what the gods love is pious, 
What happens when the gods disagree? And they certainly do in Greek mythology. At 10, A through C, is what is pious? Pious because it is loved by the gods? Or loved by the gods because it's pious? What he has in mind here is a grammatical distinction between active and passive. Think of the example, he was hit because X hit him, and X hit him because he was hit. If you say the gods love the pious because it is something the gods love, you're going in a circle. Why do the gods love it? <laughs> because it's pious. So piety is different from the mere love of the gods. Well, what is the essence of piety then? At 11a, they consider essence or accident. For the first time in extant literature, Plato insists that temporary or even permanent qualities of something do not form part of the thing's definition. The definition should re reveal the essence, not a quality. If I have a piece of white chalk, I can't say the whiteness is, has anything to do with the chalk being chalk. At 11e, we see that universal affirmative prop propositions are not controvertible. Right? All dogs are animals, but not all animals are dogs. You can do a Venn diagram for this one. The discussion turns to wholes and parts in genus and species, and thus closer to a correct method or form of making definitions. First, let's find the larger class in which the pious is found, and then look for the special features which separate it from other members of the same class. That goes on from 12d 5 through 7. At 12e through 15b, Euthyphro is becoming dazed. Socrates and Euthyphro explore the idea that piety is a subclass of right actions, actions concerned with service to the gods. But what kind of service? We cannot improve the gods or, or benefit them. Socrates suggests that Euthyphro, and Euthyphro agrees that piety is the science of prayers and sacrifices, a mutual commerce because we make requests of the gods and give sacrifices to them in return. But if the gods are not benefited by us, what do they get? Honor, respect, pleasure? And so we've come full circle. This is saying the pious is what is pleasing to the gods. That was rejected earlier. Euthyphro finds a reason to beat a hasty exit at this point. All their reasoning has been for naught. Perhaps Euthyphro will ponder the fact that he does not know what he felt he strongly knew before. There's no positive conclusion to this dialogue. Plato is not trying to teach us a philosophic structure. He's not trying to tell us the truth about anything. He's trying to encourage us to become philosophic, to think what is at heart, at the heart of something being pious. The dialogue is apparetic. It's a fruitless search, comes to dead ends. But it's not entirely fruitless. Plato is showing us how Socrates approached philosophy 
and how he engaged other people in this search for truth and knowledge. Philosophers should not be judged only on their conclusions, but rather on their questions and their approaches. A good example of this is the question raised in the Euthyphro about whether something is pious because the gods love it, or the gods love it because it's pious. This question hits at the heart of the question of ethics. If we say that goodness of something lies in its being approved by God, then, well, one, God remains beyond good and evil, and it would make no sense to say that God is good. And two, the determination of goodness is independent of us, and that other sources must decide what is good. We can never know for ourselves is something is good. The flip side of this question raised by Plato is that if God loves X because it is pious, by what standard is it pious? What is the feature or characteristic that makes the pious so? What makes the good good? He'll go on to answer that question or hint at answers to that question in some later dialogues.